Thank you. <clears throat> Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. Turn it down to tit tat. Okay. <laughs> uh, my name is, oh, not that much. Sorry. I'm messing with you. Okay. Um, yeah. So my name is Jordan. Um, I get to serve here. Um, well, primarily in NDG as a local pastor, but here I am, get to, to sort of preach around on, on certain Sundays, and this is me today. Um, personal update is my wife is exceedingly pregnant. She's heavy with child. That's what they say in the Bible, right? Heavy with child. <laughs> and uh, I will be on paternity leave starting this coming week, so um, you will hear a bit less of me over the next couple of months, but uh, still grateful to be in community just because I'm on paternity leave doesn't mean I stop becoming a Christian and I disappear. I will still be around, just perhaps not um, meeting with you about your personal things, um, in the same way at least. Um, but that's, that's me, and that's enough about me. We have lots to work through today. What is the good life? What is the good life? How would you answer that question if somebody asked you that? It's not really kind of how we think about it, or at least with that terminology, but this is the kind of question, you know, what is the good life? Behind that question, there's, well, at le- yeah, there's all these like surfacey questions that we do ask ourselves, like, um, well, okay, you know, applying for CJAP or university, I'm asking the question, will this give me a good work-life balance? You know, what's behind that question? A vision of what is the good life? Okay, now you kind of see what I'm getting at. Has anybody ever asked you that? What is the good life? In our text today, a man asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? (laughs) Which is, it seems initially a different question, but actually I'm going to say is a very similar question. In fact, I think if this man was warped forward into our world, he would have asked Jesus a question somewhat like that. What is the good life, Jesus? Okay. Different words, but the same idea. What is the good life? How do I create a good life for myself? And what we're going to see is the answer Jesus gives is different than we might expect or how we might have answered. We're in a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. If you are a guest or visiting with us this morning, well, that will be news to you, but it's not perhaps for those who call church radio in their home. We've been working our way through this text, and last week we saw... Um, We had a a, a passage on human relationships and sexuality that Dwight preached on. And in our cultural moment, we hear that text, and a lot of us are like, oh, like that's heavy, right? And then this week, we heard our text read, and there's a section about children. We're like, oh, that's so nice, right? We don't see the connection between the two. And there is a connection, okay? Jesus cares about marriage and divorce and human relationships because he cares about protecting and valuing children. There is a connection between those two, okay? Jesus cares and values the most weak and vulnerable members of our society, children, He does. And we saw that a couple weeks ago as we looked at the end uh, of Mark 9, how Jesus viewed children. Uh, Trenton was here on that, and he probably touched on something along the lines that in ancient Greece and and Rome that children were viewed as non-persons. They did not have a status and a sense like you'd have today. In other words, you could abort your child, you know, obviously, but abandon in addition to that for any reason. Like, as a parent, you could just kill your child. There was no legal recourse. They were non 
persons. That's just how it was. And then along comes Jesus, who Christians believe is the son of God, the most valuable being in the world. And he, we saw in that text, and this one too, takes a child in his arms, the most valuable being in the world, takes a non-person in his arms and says, value and serve this child as if you value and serve me. That changes things. This is what greatness looks like. That changes things. That changes things about what we believe is valuable. Not just for children, but for everyone. No longer is value determined by your strength, obviously, or your intelligence, or how much you contribute to society, how autonomous you are. No, it's given to you by God who holds you. It turns our values on its head. The vision of the good life we have and what is valuable is flipped on its head. Those who are at the lowest rungs of society, flipped. Jesus doesn't just take a child into his arms. He becomes one. A baby. We're in the season of Advent now in the church. Weak. Vulnerable. Dependent. Jesus has flipped the value scale on its head. The good life is not what we might expect. And we're going to see that play out in our text today. So Jesus, in chapter 10, in verse 13, he's with his disciples and he is teaching. And it says that they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuke them. Okay, so here you have Jesus um, and kids are coming and the disciples will stop. And you're like, why Why'd they do that, right? Again, this cultural view of children as non-persons, I'm sure, is playing into that, or at least lesser. Probably some idea of, like, they're a distraction. Jesus is important. He's got, what do you guys, like, get away, you know, big guy. And what does Jesus reply? Verse 14, and Jesus saw it. He was indignant. Don't stand in the way of somebody trying to get to Jesus. Don't do it. I think the primary way we do this is, is we make up excuses for people, right? We tend to think of, you know, this person is, is above Jesus in the gospel. Their life is fine. They're doing good enough. They don't really need that. Or we think they're below it. I can't see how the gospel, we say, would be good news for that person. We make excuses for people. Don't make excuses for people. Let this text reassure you that Jesus' heart is strongly for all people to have a chance to be welcomed to himself. Do not hinder them. That's what he says, verse 14. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And there we see it again. He took them in his arms and he's blessed them, laying his hands on them. So in this text, we see a few times this expression, the kingdom of God. And church, we've heard this expression before. What is, what is the kingdom of God? Somebody throw that out there. What is the kingdom of God? Thank you, Dwight. God's rule and his reign. Jesus saw it, or the Jews saw it, as a coming age in which God's rule and reign would take place, in which his will would be done. I, um, I have a three-year-old daughter, 
daughter Hazel, and she has a very strong will. And sometimes we joke about her house being the kingdom of Hazel, okay? And it even like manifests itself in certain ways. Like we often eat at our table with like this stuffed bunny at one of the seats alongside of us because she loves and she values that bunny. So there it is with us at the table. Okay, the kingdom of God is not where, you know, Hazel's will is done. The kingdom of God is where God's will is done. And it's where what he values and loves is brought to the table, where what he values is values. That is the kingdom of God. And the Jews viewed that, like I said, as an age to come. But what we see as we read through Mark is that in the person of Jesus, the king of that kingdom has come. The future has come walking into the present, broken in. And Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. What he values is now being valued and he wants his will to be done. And so when Jesus teaches then that the kingdom of God belongs to children and that you have to become like a child to enter it, what then is he talking about? Well, he's telling us something about what is valued in his kingdom. He's teaching us something about the values of his kingdom. What's that? Well, I'll tell you what it's not, okay? It's not, we're talking about children here. It's not ignorance, okay? Jesus is not saying you have to have a childlike gullibility, check your brain at the door in order to enter the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus is saying, no. What Jesus is talking about is something like dependence and trust that you see in children. Dependence. See, as a child, how did you come into this world? How did you come in? Tell me. We're very silent today, but you can do it. Yes, yes, and you arrive in a state of what then? Screaming and helplessness. Yeah, there we go. You're helpless. You're naked, right? You're vulnerable. You're completely dependent and empty-handed, and unless somebody feeds you and clothes you, you will die. Okay, that's the state you came into this world, and slowly over time it changes as you gain ability, right? This past year I sort of celebrated, I don't know, rejoice, whatever, okay. My son Jackson, he's past one, one year, and I saw him, he's holding this, it was garbage in his hand. He was like walking around with garbage in his hand. I was like, Jackson, go put it in the trash over there. And he waddled over and he put it in. I'm like, yes, he's now contributing to the family, you know. <laughs> See, I celebrate that, but what Jesus celebrates is the opposite of that. Not, you know, a handful of ability to contribute, but empty-handed childlike dependence on himself. That's a value of the kingdom. That's what he wants brought to the table. Empty-handed dependence and trust, right? See, there's this period of time that as a child, you have complete confidence in your parents and trust. You don't even think about it. Does anybody here remember the first time they asked their parents a question and they like didn't know the answer? If you do, it's like a shocking moment because it's, it's, it's at that point you realize for the first time your parents are like not the all-knowing people you thought they were, right? And what Jesus is saying, it's that kind of childlike trust and dependence. It's that kind of empty-handed dependence that is currency in my kingdom that is brought to the table in my kingdom. That's what I value. Not that you would stay your whole life as children, that you would be like them in those ways, unlike our society, right? This is so counterintuitive to what we value in our society. Faith, 
dependence, trust. The currency of his kingdom is different. Jesus is saying, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God with essentially open-handed dependence and childlike trust will not enter it. And now we're, get to get a, we're going to get to see an interaction play that out. Chapter 10, or eight, uh, 10, yes, and 17. And so here's a story, and as he was, that's Jesus. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. And so here you have somebody eager, right? They're running, they kneel down, and they asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I should say by eternal life, this man does not mean sort of a disembodied state up in the sky somewhere. No, it's not what he means. He's asking, how do I take part in the good life in the age to come? right? That whole kingdom of God that we were talking about. How do I, how do I take part of that? How, how, do, how, do, how will I be accepted by God into that? Okay, this is what the man is asking. This is then a question about acceptance by God. How do I be accepted by God? This is not a, or this is a question about acceptance by God. It's, um, in Christianese terms, this is a question about salvation, Okay. And you might notice that uh, if you were asked this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? You, you sort of think like, oh, Jesus, he was just sort of, you know, he's tossed the softball, right? Like if somebody was to ask you this question, you'd be like, yes, they asked me <laughs> as a Christian, right? You're like, you know, I can, now I can answer. I see some of you smiling. Anyway, Jesus does not answer like we might expect. The man, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God alone. This is not the answer we might expect. Right? Why? See, if some of you, some of you here might have some Muslim friends that have raised this with you, they'll say something like this. Because as Christians, we believe that Jesus is God, right? And they'll say something like, here, look, Jesus is meaning to say he is not God. But did Jesus say in this text he is not God? No. Does he say he is not good? No, and Muslims believe that Jesus was at least good. So it's no to both those things. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, well, what he said, no one is good but God alone. He is affirming God's unique goodness. That's what he's saying. Do you remember what this question was about? This is a question about how do I be accepted by God? This is not a question about who is God. This is a question about God's acceptance. In, in Jesus, in his response to this man's question, how do I be accepted by God, has to expose some of these man's assumptions. He has to dismantle them. What are those assumptions in his question? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What are the assumptions in his question? Tell me. Yes, it's something you can do on your own in order to what? That God will accept you, right? If you do enough good, God will accept you. This is this man's assumption, and Jesus has to expose it to say, there is nothing that you can do good enough to be accepted by God. Because by what standard of goodness are we talking here? Is this a sort of human-to-human sort of goodness? That if you can, you know, you, you can't, is what Jesus is saying. You can't go around comparing yourself to other people and be accepted. It doesn't work like that. You can't get enough likes and garner enough moral fortitude in order to be accepted by God. The standard isn't human to human. The standard is human to God, and there is no one good but God alone. And let me just articulate 
that to use as Jesus, basically. You know the commandments. Verse 19, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Mother, <laughs> And he said to them, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. <clears throat> and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Can you imagine that? Talking to somebody like this, he genuinely thinks he is, you know, morally perfect. He has a crystal clear track record. Talking to Jesus of all people. Can you imagine how annoying and frustrating that would be? Like, and yet this text says, and Jesus loving him. See, if you're just thinking of this story of some like rich prick, you're not going to be comforted by this. But I'm comforted by this. I'm comforted to know that in my pride and in my moral arrogance, nonetheless, Jesus comes to me and loves me with gentle love. That is his heart towards me and that is his heart towards you. And we need to hear that. Jesus, it says, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And so there you have it, right? Jesus' response to this question, what must I do to be accepted by God? The response is, come follow me. And it's not just come follow me. There was more to it than that, right? Sell all your possessions, give to the poor, come follow me. And we read this and we're like, is this what Jesus really meant? Yeah, he really meant this. Sell all your possessions, give it to the poor and come follow me. And we know in verse 22, this man had great possessions. This was a big call. There was a great cost in renouncing this stuff to follow Jesus. And so we immediately wonder, well, why would Jesus ask this of him? And is this something that he would ask of, of you and me? Why would Jesus ask this of him? Well, look at the commandments that Jesus quotes to him. Some of you might be familiar. There's 10 of them, but in this text, there's only five. There's something that binds those five together in common with each other. Do you know what those, that, that is? Those commandments all have to do with human-to-human -human interaction. And the five commandments not listed have to do with human-to-God Probably most importantly, the very first one, you should have no other gods before me. Why do you think Jesus didn't even almost bother to bring this out with him? Why do you think Jesus left this out? Tell me. Yes, valued his possessions more than God. Jesus, knowing that man's heart, knew what occupied the place of God and said, you have to deny it. Give it up. It has become a distraction for you. It's an obstacle to your right worship of me. And Jesus, because he loves him, calls him to deny that part of himself so that he can then come and follow him. So, you know, if you compare this text to what, this text that Jesus says to this individual, to this man, to what Jesus said earlier in Mark 8 and 34, Jesus says this. This will help make sense of this text. Jesus 8 and 34, he calls the crowd to him with all his disciples and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so you can see from what Jesus is saying here that what he said to this rich man is just a form of what he asks all of us, to deny yourself and follow me. And in this case, the personalized form of the personalized call to repent and believe for this man, 
Jesus, knowing his heart, was renounce your possessions. They're in the way. This was a personalized call to repentance and belief. And so is Jesus saying this to all of us? Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. He's not necessarily saying we have to become materially poor in order to enter heaven. And some of us, we hear that. We're like, oh, phew, like I don't need to sell everything. <laughs> Let me say this, okay? Robert Gundry, the New Testament scholar, he, he more or less says something like this. He says, if you were comforted by the fact that Jesus did not tell all his followers to sell all their possessions, that this command is probably for you. That you become too attached to your stuff. You've lost sight of what really matters. You've lost sight of what's real. I'll tell you what's really real is that there's more to this life than this. There's more to this life than just a rat race of power and money and prestige. There's more to this life than you just collect stuff and die. There's a God who made you for himself. There's a God who made you for himself that even when we become like this, pack rats of power and money and prestige and garnering up all of our possessions and sitting on it until we die, there is a God who actually owned the riches of heaven. He's the ruler of the universe. And he left all that, the riches of heaven, and became poor, a baby like we saw, weak, dependent, and vulnerable. And we read about him things like he had no place to even lay his head. And when he died, he died naked. His very last item of clothing gambled away. So that what? So that our lives no longer need to be defined by this rat race. Our lives no longer to be caught up in the addiction of power and money and prestige. We're free. We're free. You can be free. Jesus has come to set us free from that rat race. In a sense, he was run over by it so that we would no longer have to be enslaved by it. You can be free. You no longer have to live with possessions like a chain around your heart holding you fast to this world. Jesus has come to offer you so much more. A life of abundance, a life of plenty, but it's not a life of prosperity now. It's a life of contentment and simplicity now and radical generosity for him. That's what he invites us into. That's the power of the gospel moving in our hearts and in our lives. That's what it looks like. Guys, I was reading this week. I came across this, John Dixon, he's a church historian. He had this thing, and I was talking about, he said, the, consi the consistent witness of the church from St. Basil in the 3rd century right through canon law in the 12th century is things like this. Canon law in the 12th century. If you have more than one cloak and you hold it back to the person in need, your moral obligation Okay, I'm not talking about cheerful giving. I'm talking about your moral obligation in the same sense like you might not steal or you might not lie is to give that away. And as I read this, it was so convicting. It was so, we, guys, we are so blinded to what is happening in our culture. We are so wealthy. Like we live in such affluence and wealth that we have no idea what the call of Jesus it seems to be in our life. We are so disconnected from it. John Dixon went on to point out, he's like, if, if the Christians from the 12th century should walk into the 21st century, the same sense of disconnection, the same sense of like horror and like what has happened here, they would probably feel that same sense of disconnection that we feel when we look back on the slaveholders of the 17th and 18th centuries. How could they do it? They had the gospel. They knew what was true, and yet they were enslaved. 
They enslaved others, we enslave ourselves. Do you see what's happening here? We are blind to the call of Jesus in our lives, and he wants to call us to wake up. See what I have given for you. I have given you everything, everything. You have the riches of Christ Jesus available to you, saved up, stored up in heaven. You do not need to hold on to what I have given you to steward. This is what is true. This is what the gospel tells us. He's been run over so that we don't have to, so we can be freed from this rat race, okay? And he was raised to life again. And so how do we have eternal life? Well, it's not by earning it, okay? It's just a joyful response of obedience of our hearts, and that's gonna look different for different people. But it's so important we see that our response is to deny ourselves, not just our money, everything. It's a call to self-death and then coming, we, we deny ourselves, we come in this empty-handed dependence and trust in Jesus, like a child. That's what faith looks like, resting in God's provision. So you can see in this, we give up far more than we'd ever expect. We do. That's what denying ourselves looks like. But we gain far more than we'd ever dare believe. The riches of Christ Jesus. <laughs> Don't be so attached to your stuff, you lose sight of what really matters, okay? See, if what comforts you is this stuff, and what disheartens you is the call of denial for the sake of Jesus and heaven itself, you are living upside down from the good life that Jesus has called us to. You think this is the response the man expected? (laughs) How do you think he expected to be responded to? What do you think? If you were to suppose, you know, because we can't know. (laughs) Yeah, or some sort of like, well, like, it's okay, just make a little adjustment here and there, okay? Some sense of, like, acceptance. Here he's coming all eager. Remember, he runs and he kneels. He's got his wealth, his status. He's wearing his moral track record on his sleeve, and Jesus essentially says to him, that's not going to help you, okay? Your wealth can't earn it. Your position can't, your status can't position you, your moral tracker can't justify you. It's, it's nothing. Only I can rescue you. Only I can save you. You must come empty-handed like a child in dependence and trust. That's what Jesus says to him. And how does the man re- react? He came eager, but he left in verse 22 disheartened. Disheartened. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. How do you respond to the call of Jesus on your life? You remember, Jesus was getting ready to go on a journey. And this man came up to him, eager. And then he walked away disheartened on his own path. Are you going to join Jesus on his journey? (laughs) Are you going to walk away disheartened? I beg you, don't walk away disheartened. Take heart. His heart. The Spirit can give that to you. See, how many of us think of Jesus as just a good moral teacher? Yeah, he's a good moral teacher. This man thought of Jesus as a a good teacher. That's how he refers to him, good teacher, right? And yet, he calls him a good teacher and he doesn't follow his teachings. He calls him good and he doesn't follow his vision of the good life because he's so addicted by his possessions. Don't ever call Jesus a good moral teacher if you're not willing to follow what he says is good or his teachings. Let it go. (laughs) Just be honest with yourself. 
Okay, this man's wealth was functioning for him like a god. His security, his hope, his joy, his life. What's that for you? What's become ultimate for you? You can let it go. And you can come in open-handed dependence and put your trust in Jesus. Hear these words, Jesus again in, in Mark 8. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Feel his heart for you. Feel his heart for you. Some of you here like, oh, ah, another person just frustrated and, and upset about me for my money. <laughs> And just hear this, guys. Hear Jesus' heart for you. Jesus was not one of those people chanting, eat the rich. You know, that's not Jesus' heart for you. Okay, Jesus' concern about wealth wasn't ultimately about economics. It wasn't ultimately about some socialism thing and caring for the poor, although he did care for the poor. Jesus' ultimate concern about wealth was for you in your heart that you wouldn't be distracted from what matters most, that you wouldn't miss out on true worship and enjoyment of him. That's his heart. He cares about you. Feel and know his love for you. You can trust him. He's that good. And he does care about the poor. He does. Feel his gentle love for you. He now uses this, Jesus uses this as a teaching moment for his disciples. Verse 23, 10 and 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be those, for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, and Jesus said to them, um, children, <laughs> so you see here the disciples are called children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we hear that, like, camel, needle, <laughs> like, what is he talking about? And some of you have heard here, maybe, in preaching, that there was this, like, gate in Jerusalem that was, like, really narrow, and you had camels, and you had to, like, unpack them, and it was super difficult to get them through the gate. Hey, let me tell you, unfortunately, there is no such evidence that gate exists, okay? Do not believe everything you hear from pastors, me included, and sermons, okay? You need to search things out, the scriptures for yourself, okay? That's important, but if you think about it even more so, that undermines the point Jesus is making. If you can do it, but with great difficulty, okay? The point Jesus is making here is not that it's difficult, but that it's impossible. Save a miracle. It's impossible. Save a miracle. See, Jesus really, really, really wants us to get how hazardous and distracting wealth can be to your and my soul. Now, can it happen? How, how do we do it then? How do we live a life of open-handed dependence and trust when we're rich? <laughs> well, you can. It's possible, right? I've seen greedy, poor people and very generous, rich people. But I thought he said it's next to impossible. It is impossible, Save a miracle. What's the miracle? The miracle is Jesus encountering your heart, changing you. It is possible. Jesus can so radically turn your life upside down that it is now possible to live in his will. It's really hard to see his will when your heart is, it's impossible to see his will. When your heart is wrapped up and caught up and enslaved in materialism and then the riches of this world. 
But when you've, you've let them go, when Jesus has freed you, when you see what's on offer to you, and you see yourself as a steward and everything he's given you as a gift, that frees your heart to then walk in open-handed dependence on his will, which is what the kingdom of God is. Open-handed dependence and trust. It is possible. And I need that. I need the power of the Spirit to help me do that. I need the power of the Spirit to help me walk in open-handed dependence, to, to be content, to live simply before him. A godly, content, and simple life. And you're like, I need, yes, I need that. I need that. I'm talking about myself as rich. I view myself as rich. I do. I have an education. I have access to the internet. I'm rich. It's as simple as that. We lose sight of this. See, when we talk about money, like you hear sermons like, oh, sermon about money, frick. Like, okay, fine. If we have to talk about it, let's talk about like the rich people. Like it's not me. You know, like we do these kinds of things, right? I'm talking about me. This text is for me as it is for you. We are rich, okay? We live more wealthy. More, come on, like the ancient kings of Rome, like I can, they didn't have this. I can tomorrow have any one of a million products arrive on my doorstep. I can have any food I want delivered to this room in the next 15 minutes. Like any food. Like I can have a private chauffeur come pick me up from here and drive me home today. We live with such unimaginable wealth. We are so blind to this. And yet Jesus still comes to us in this place. He invites us. His heart for you is love. Generous, gentle love. And he says, you can let it go. You can be free. See what's on offer to you in the kingdom of God. That is his heart for you. The disciples are uncomfortable by this. Surprise, like us. Verse 26, they're exceedingly astonished and they said, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Again, remember, it's not that it's possible, it's that it's impossible. And this man's question was about salvation ultimately, acceptance by God. How can I be accepted by God? And Jesus is saying, again, you cannot save yourself, right? No amount of money is going to cut it. No amount of doing good is going to justify you. It's impossible. That is all nothing before me. None of that counts. Only open-handed faith and dependence on me. De deny yourself. Follow me. That's it. That's it. Faith alone is what we mean by that. Faith, not with works, not with you showing up here, sitting here, grateful you're here, not for, with you doing the sacraments or whatever. I would disagree. I think Jesus would disagree with my Catholic friends. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. There's nothing but faith alone in him, dependence, open-handed trust in him that is gonna rescue our souls. And I say all of that, okay, it's really important to buffer that by saying faith without work is dead, okay? It's faith alone in Jesus, but faith without works is dead. Faith is the root out of which a life of simplicity and generosity and open-handed dependence is the fruit. And if you don't see the fruit, ask about the root. Ask about the root. This is Jesus' reminder to you. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and, and, and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, like, get this, okay, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake in the gospel. In other words, you don't leave all of these things 
for selfish reasons. You do it for me. You do it for Jesus. It's not about earning. Jesus is giving. It's done for my sake and the gospel. Then verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Jesus doesn't want us to forget that. And in the age to come, eternal life. That many who are first will be last and the last first. You know, I love this. I love this text. This is one of my favorite texts in Mark. It brings me such comfort. There is a multifold set of promises here. Do you see them? You see what Jesus is saying about what happens when we deny ourselves and we follow him, whatever that looks like, his personalized call for repentance in our lives. Well, part of it is a promise of persecution, that in this world we will face persecution, and for some of us that will look like having to give up things that we love so dearly. And let me tell you, in this room, I know as a pastor that there are people who have given up all of these things. It's true. Jesus does call us to live an open-handed life of being willing to renounce it because we know he is better. He promises that, and that's hard. That's one of his promises. But you know what another one of his promises is? In the age to come, eternal life. It's true. There is more to life than this. There is more to life than what you see. Okay, there is an age to come, and it is now coming in Jesus in which everything will be made new. Okay, and none of this stuff that we have collected up and it's just gonna, we're just gonna die, okay, is going to matter. <laughs> but you can, there is a way in which you can save for the future. That's the good news. There is a way you can add into the bank account of the future and that is through generosity and simplicity and a life of contentment. That's good news, isn't it? That's a promise he has to offer, eternal life, persecution. And the other promise, and this might be striking for us, right? He says, verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. There is a promise for the present. <laughs> like, what is that? How does Jesus say we are gonna receive a hundredfold when we deny ourselves and place our faith in him? How are we gonna receive a hundredfold now in this time? I'll tell you how. This is the application it's you and I. Jesus, we are this application. See, you become the brother, you become the mother, you become the father in Christ to those who have left father and mother and brother who've been kicked out by their families for the sake of Jesus and the gospel or ostracized by them socially. You become that to them. But we're speaking about wealth. Your houses, your land, your apartment, your phone, your clothes, your food that also becomes part of that same kingdom of God. That's how it's a hundredfold. It's a millionfold. In fact, it's a billionfold when you think about it. The application is you. Do you think about your things that way? Do you think about your stuff that way? Has the grace of Jesus caught your heart to the point that you are able to give it away with joyful abandon? It can. That is the power of the Spirit of God in us. Jesus doesn't call us to all live materially poor, but he does call us to live lives of simplicity and open-handed dependence in his provision on him and trust. How do we do this? How do we live like this? See, there's a point when we, get, we have to get really practical, right? Like, is that a economic bracket, you know? Do I have to make a certain salary? Do I have to give a certain percentage of my income? Is there a certain number of shoes that I have to give away? We, we get into these kinds of places. And I'm gonna say that's a really unhelpful place to be. 
Those are unhelpful questions to ask. Much more helpful is asking the question, how is my heart responding to calls of generosity that I'm receiving in my life? Okay, in other words, when somebody comes up and, and asks me for something, and they might have good reasons or bad reasons, okay? When just, just the thing is this, when somebody comes up and asks me for something, how does my heart respond? Do I respond in annoyance and frustration? I'm like, oh my goodness, like they just want my money, or they should, you know, they should steward their own resources better, like this is mine, like what the heck? Like, do I respond in annoyance and frustration, or do I respond eager because I've now been presented an opportunity to be a good steward of the Lord's resources. And this has nothing to say with whether you give to them or not. That's not the question I'm asking at all. My question is simply a diagnostic question. When somebody comes and asks you to be generous, how does your heart respond? See, that's an indicator. That can be a litmus test as you go through life that is so much more useful or valuable or true and right than Am I in this economic bracket or whatever, okay? Jesus is not about that. Jesus is about our hearts. He doesn't need your stuff. He wants our hearts to be captured by his love for us, for him. I'll close with this. There's a lot of ways I could apply this, okay? I made the diagnostic test. I was like, okay, there's, we don't have to say everything today. There's so much in this text. It's amazing. I will say this, okay? Don't forget to give to your local church. <laughs> we always get to this point after, right? We get to respond in a few different ways. We get to respond by giving. We get to respond by singing, okay? Here's that right now, okay? You get to respond by giving to your local church. And let me say this. I looked at the budget this past week for our English congregations, and we are ahead of budget. Praise God. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you that the grace of Jesus has been moving towards you, through you to the point that you view this church as a worthy cause for the Lord's money. Do you hear that? Thank you. You view this as a worthy cause for the Lord's money. I am so grateful. You are sustaining, your gifts are sustaining the work of the kingdom of God in this place. And in this city, thank you. And then I will say this. That's a shoestring budget. There is so much more we could do. There's so much more I would love to do. I want to do. I don't think we have a lack of vision. I don't think that's where our lack is. I think our hearts have a lack of vision of what Jesus wants to do in us and in this city. And I want to call you to so much more than a shoestring budget. I believe that Jesus wants to impact this city in incredible ways through ministries of mercy and justice, through ministries to the, to the poor and the vulnerable and the hungry, like you see in this text that he cares about, to ministries of, of church planning and renewal, to seeing the gospel go out through the city, that it would no longer be an unreached people group in North America, but the most reached city in the world. This is possible. See, I don't believe that God has unjustly distributed his resources. I refuse to believe that the Christians of this city are just generally shoestring compared to the rest of the people in this city. I disbelieve it. God has not unjustly distributed his resources. Our hearts have unjustly held them. Allow the grace of Jesus to touch you. He comes to you in love, and he says, I will set you free. What is the good life? What is the good life? 
It is living a life of open-handed dependence and childlike trust in God's provision. It is a life of simplicity and uh, contentment and radical generosity. That's what the good life is. And Jesus wants to, through the gospel, invite you into that today. (laughs) Let's pray. (laughs) Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you've come and you have set me free. That while I am rich and increased in goods, that you have, you have by your spirit freed me and brought contentment and joy. And I pray that you would only increase that. And Father, I pray for anybody here who is, who is comforted by the fact that this was a personalized call of repentance. Jesus, that they would no longer be comforted by that anymore, but comforted by you and your grace alone. Jesus, come and move in your people. Make us a generous people. Make us a content people. And help us to overflow and move as you call us to give. I ask this in Jesus' name. Change us. Change us, Lord. Let this be the day that somebody walked in here today and was was enslaved to the gods of materialism in the pursuit of their own success that they let that go. And say, you, Lord, are enough for me. Come, Holy Spirit. We need you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being here. Thank you for moving in our people and making them a generous people. Increase it. In Jesus' name, amen.